Hello, everyone, and welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast where an undergraduate philosophy major and his former high school philosophy teacher discuss a variety of philosophical topics in an understandable way, all towards the purpose of living a good life, participating in a new thought experiment. I'm your host, Black and White Derek. And participating in a not-so-new thought experiment, your favorite and competent trolley car driver, I'm your host, Andrew Graziano. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3, where this week we are excited to have one of the hosts of the Pan Sidecast, an editor of a new book just out, Philosophers on Consciousness, Talking About the Mind, Jack Symes. But before we get to that, once again, we must catch up. Andrew, what's going on? Life is good, just uh, doing the same old, same old. I feel like every time uh, we do this, I just repeat the same thing that I'm doing. So it's just basically school. School's been really really catching up lately. A lot of stuff uh, has been due, but by the time this episode comes out, I think it will be free. Uh, weather's been super beautiful, so I've been sitting outside studying a ton, getting my, my tan in. I don't think there's been anything that exciting other than that. Let me think real quick. Would you say your experience is largely Sisyphean? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. Oh, of course, have to mention it. Today's the Super Bowl. So it's Bengals Rams for future listeners years into the future. I, I'm a big football fan, real football. I know we're going to have some disagreements on that later in the episode, of course. I know uh, Jack Symes and Mr. Parsons aren't uh, real football fans. Wait. <laughs> Are you calling American football real football? American football is real football. Oh, this is our first big disagreement on the show. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, I think in past episodes, we did talk about what you call football, soccer, when Italy, uh, how Italy destroyed uh, England and uh, the Euros. Was that six months ago? Feels like yesterday. Uh, yeah, it was last summer. Yeah, it does feel like yesterday. Yeah. Uh, gone are the days <laughs> of last summer. Now I'm sad. <laughs> well, you know, you can watch your five-hour American football match and I'll sit back and have a nice two-hour real football match <laughs> well the we'll difference on with the, our days the, the difference is uh one's exciting and one's not oh man uh, that's brutal that's to- <laughs> <laughs> anyway yeah that's today <laughs> i'm <laughs> looking really looking forward to that um i'm going for the Bengals. don't particularly like either team but uh until the texans uh, are able to become a winning franchise well that may be some time my friend uh, that's gonna be a while <laughs> <laughs> But your your soccer team, I might be wrong about this. I I don't know. Your soccer team is um are they the Texans of the British? I don't know, <laughs> British, British soccer. British soccer. Uh, well, I don't want to get into technicalities, but uh, Swansea AFC is in the second tier of English football currently, and uh, we've had some good seasons recently. This season been a little tough. We're kind of mid mid table, which means in, in American speak is we're, we're in the middle of the standings. Had some coaching difficulties and uh, a number of players left. And, you know, last year we were in the playoffs to get promoted to the Premier League. And and this year we're just struggling to stay in the middle of the table. So, but that's okay. That's okay. So it goes. So how are you? uh, Sorry to throw you under the bus for a minute. But uh, other than than that, how's it going? It's going fine. You know, I'm I'm getting ready to be buried. I mean, completely buried in essays and research papers. Uh, so this is kind of my last my last weekend before the next three or four weekends are just filled with lots of words on pages. 
but it's all good. You know, we're getting close to March and that means spring. And I love spring. Winter's great too. The only reason spring is great is because winter's so dreary. So you can't have one without the other. You took a pause after I'm getting buried. And I was like, what is going on? Oh my gosh. <laughs> no, I am uh, in good health as far as I know. <laughs> so hopefully not getting buried in that way. Although I believe I'm uh, set up to be cremated. So cremated. Sorry. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just uh, scatter my ashes somewhere in the mountains and I'll be happy. <laughs> well, it's a really dark that's, beginning. It's very, very dreary. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, geez, what a beginning to such an exciting episode. We got Jack Symes coming up on his book about uh, philosophers on consciousness. So here we go. Everyone, we're absolutely thrilled to have with us today Jack Symes to talk about his new book, Philosophers on Consciousness, Talking About the Mind. That's right. Jack Symes is the producer of the Pan PanPsychast Philosophy Podcast and the editor of the Bloomberry series, Talking About Philosophy. He's currently a teacher and researcher of philosophy at the University of Liverpool and the United Kingdom. Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. So before we dive into this really wonderful book and the philosophy of mind and consciousness, I always like to start off with a couple of questions. This one just always interests me so much because it seems like everyone has such a unique experience. Jack, could you tell us how you came to philosophy? How did it become involved in your life? So I think like many people, when you become a, a teenager and you start to question your existence and the origin of the universe, and you start to ask these uh, big questions of, of the world and your place in it. And then naturally, I, I came to a religious studies class in the, in the UK and, and fell in love with it because I was really interested in these questions. Before that, I wasn't interested in studying at school whatsoever. I was just always getting in trouble and spent most of my time in detention or suspended or writing lines. And then as soon as I found out that you can actually study these questions for a living, I was like, I'm going to do everything I can to be able to do this for the rest of my life. And so it very much was a one of those moments which woke me up from my slumber and I haven't, uh, I haven't looked back at all, really. That's so awesome. That's kind of relatable to how I came to philosophy too. Not 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 so much, but um, Mr. Parsons was my high school philosophy teacher. I don't I don't know if you know that, but um, so he was the first philosophy oh, cool. guy that I ever took, and I think I had a similar experience where it was just like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. Yeah, we had a whole unit on philosophy of religion, actually. So I think a lot of people come to it through religion. Yeah, for, for us in the UK, for the A-level, so when you're in between the ages of 16 and 18, we study the religious course, the religious studies course, which is half philosophy of religion and half ethics or moral philosophy. So it is very much philosophy under the banner of religious studies. Recently, they've implemented a third exam paper, which you have to study alongside them, which is something like uh, developments in Christian thought or Islamic thought or one of the other six major world religions. Uh, we've got an audio book on the developments of Christian thought and episodes on all of the A-level content. If you want to know more about what the course involves in the UK on, on the pan -Sychus. But yeah, so I've, we're still producing content about the A-level course. Like As of three years ago, I think we finished the course and I was teaching it in a secondary school up until about two or three years ago as well. So it's not just philosophy, but th that course still uh, still gets me really excited. And I get to teach 
philosophy of religion and ethics at the University of Liverpool as well, which is uh, which is really exciting. Yeah, that's super awesome. Well, Andrew and I would love to talk philosophy of religion, but today we're talking about this great book, Philosophers on Consciousness. Clearly on the Pan Sidecast, uh, you guys cover just an enormous amount of, of philosophical topics. So I guess to kind of get us going here, of all the topics in philosophy that you could have written a book and put a book together on, why philosophy of consciousness? That's a really great question to start off with. I suppose a good way in here would be to think about the question of what is the first question we should be asking in philosophy more generally. And Albert Camus in his famous essay, The Myth of Sisyphus, says the first philosophical question we should ask is whether or not life is worth living. That's the thing we must decide before we get on with anything else. Well, maybe this is a little bit naive, but I, I sort of think that the first question we should be asking is, what is the nature of consciousness? What is it about when Camus says whether life is worth living? Already we should ask, what, what is life? What is that inner world of experience which we have? What does life involve? Is my conscious mind an illusion? Is the physical world an illusion? How about the lives of my loved ones or the non-human animals that end up on my dinner plate? So it seems like a good place to start the book series because it also ties into what would be our second book on God. There's lots of alternative concepts of God which involve the consciousness being like a ubiquitous, pervasive feature of the universe. Perhaps we'll talk about that a little bit later. But also it ties into moral philosophy and ethics as well, which will be our third book in the series. What kind of creatures should fall into our moral calculus? Which ones should be considered ethical subjects? So I think consciousness is a great place to start in terms of uh, meaning, in terms of the question of what life involves and what life is. And it has implications for all these other views as well. So it seemed like a, a really good starting point. My question is, this is we're kind of talking about this before we started recording, and it sounds like this is a very interesting uh, book, how it's put together, very unique. So I'm curious, how did this book come together? How did you get the idea to start this series? Yeah, so I was teaching at King Edward VI High School for Girls, which is basically on the University of Birmingham campus. And... Eugen Nagasawa, who runs the Global Philosophy of Religion Project at the University of Birmingham, uh, I ended up going for a few coffees with him and stuff, and we invited him onto the show, and he spoke about the problem of evil for atheists, and he came on our audiobook as well to speak about the life and person of Jesus. And Eugen's a, an incredible philosopher and perhaps one of my favorites. And so it was, it was awesome to get to meet with him so regularly and speak about some philosophical ideas and the pan and the project more generally. And yeah, he kept badgering me to start some kind of book series. Well, he mentioned it like two or three times, and then we're in his office, and he showed me a few on the bookshelf. He said, it could look like this, it could like look like this. And eventually I thought, yeah, like I, I trust Eugen more than I, <laughs> I trust myself. I'd rather, uh, if, if he thinks this is a good idea, I shouldn't question it for a moment. And so it went from there, really. Now, after lots of early versions of the book, originally it was supposed to be one book, and then a good number of rejections. And we eventually settled on the team that was going to help produce the book and what it was going to involve. And then Bloomsbury came along and said, hey, we'd love to not just publish one book, which was supposed to be Consciousness, Ethics, and God. We'd like to do a, a full series of perhaps, let's start with 10 books. And so we're absolutely, as you can imagine, like overjoyed that we're going to get to produce all these books on so many interesting topics. 
so got to work straight away on the consciousness book so in terms of like how the book comes together just to give the a listener a bit of insight is it's a collection of interviews and essays strung together to be like a guide or a story through some of the leading theories on how the brain that physical thing in your head produces this seemingly non-physical phenomenal experience why is there something it's like to be you why doesn't all your brain processing go on in the dark and so we take these transcripts based on the podcast which uh, Casey Logue the assistant editor puts together and you can imagine like a 2 hour conversation they end up being about 30,000 words some of them 40,000 some of them 25 my task is to turn that into the 4,000 best words it can be so trim it all down take the best bits then essentially rewrite it from the ground up just restate everything that was said but for the written page we then get Uh, teachers and students and members of the public to have a look at them and and identify parts that oh no i had to go back and reread that sentence because we don't want people to do that we want everything to just flow you should be able to pick up pick it up and just read it start to finish and once we've got that feedback it goes back again to myself make the changes there's info boxes and introductions and afterthoughts and questions and and readings and then it goes back to the contributor like the person we've interviewed and it's back and forth to make sure it's the best version of the conversation it can be eventually we get the interviews and then the essays are put together around the same time so reaching out to again leading philosophers of mind and set and trying to get them to explain new ideas new and interesting ideas or ideas that discussed before in an engaging and accessible way in reference to the other people who are in the book so I think does that I guess that's a, a quite a comprehensive answer maybe I don't No, no that's fantastic and that's some of the things I wanted to point out to to our listeners you know open door philosophy we try to make philosophy accessible to people who may not be as familiar with philosophy and I think one of the nice things that this book does is it maintains the rigorous integrity of the philosophical research that uh, the philosophers that are included have done while at the same time making it accessible for a wider audience. And a couple of things, you already mentioned the info boxes. That's a really wonderful idea for people who are thinking about buying this book, these info boxes. Did you compare them to uh, speed cameras, I think? Uh, <laughs> yeah, philosophical speed cameras. If the, idea, if the conversation's moving too quickly, they, they slow it down so no one's left behind. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when you're reading philosophy, oftentimes you you hit big words, big terms, and it, it just flies right by you. And uh, these info boxes do a, a great job. And also we get a bit of your personality in it as well. So what, what's, <laughs> what is your beef with Adam Sandler? I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, I suppose one of the things I've learned from putting the book together and all these people taking a look at it and early readers is you'll say, what, what is your problem with Adam Sandler? I didn't realize people really liked his films. <laughs> I thought this was an uncontroversial example of a negative conscious experience that one can have. And people are like, have you not seen like Happy Gilmore or <laughs> is it Meet the, the Zodak? Zod- I like, Zol- Zoltan? I, stuff, I don't know. Zohan. 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 Oh, Andrew knows. Andrew yeah. Zohan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're going to get along very well, Andrew. But the, <laughs> but no, I think uh, the fact that people like Adam Sandler's movies may point to the fact that I'm not sure that the zombie hypothesis is true. That people are, <laughs> maybe is it evidence that people aren't really 
having conscious experiences, <laughs> or, or certainly um, that we need to reflect on the nature of our on the nature of our experiences more. Right? Perhaps <laughs> a book like this can convince people to reflect on the type of experience you're having and whether or not you'd like to continue having it, or watch a Paul Rudd movie instead. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so the info boxes uh, are really great and. Not only in explaining some very key concepts, what you're talking about. Again, we also get your personality in that as an author and a thinker. You know, you have also essentially bookended a lot of the chapters with your own sort of summary of what we're getting ready to read and some reflections on things. And at the end of each chapter, it also provides some very helpful questions to consider about what they've just read and uh, some further reading. Mm -hmm. So I, I really appreciate that as a reader and. Where did the idea come from for you to sort of insert your own commentary? Like oftentimes when you get a collection of essays, it's just, you know, there's an introduction to the whole book and then it's just the essays. Mm. So like, I really appreciate this narrative thread. Yeah, it came from just reading uh, more widely and seeing it used, not necessarily in, a, in an anthology or a collection, as you say. I, I, I'm not sure of examples which fall into that category. I think the book is doing something quite unique there, bringing in a range of pedagogical features to essentially guide the reader through. Kind of, the reader has an interlocutor throughout the book. They've got that constant voice, that thread that brings together the other, the other chapters. So I suppose the, the meaning or the intention behind it is to have that, that guide. And thinking about teaching, and, and Derek, you can, uh, this is, uh, imagine what, from your experience as a teacher as well, you found is that it would be absurd for you as a teacher just to give your students loads of content, right? Just give them a stack of papers and go, off you go. They want to ask questions. They want to engage with it. It'd be really helpful if you explained back some of the ideas. It'd be helpful that, oh, okay, has everyone just read that paragraph? Well, what did they mean by this term, right? And and what kind of questions does that raise? I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed that that feature of the book because like I said, it ties together. It, it leaves no person, hopefully, left behind. It's a, it's some just simple, like there's nothing revolutionary here. It's just bringing together some simple differentiation to make sure that if you're not already engaging with the field, then you can access these ideas. And hopefully, if you are experienced in the field, then you just ignore the pedagogical features and just read what this person thinks of this issue now and today. So hopefully there's a little bit of that for everybody. But also, I was thinking about this a, a few days ago. I was teaching a seminar on philosophy of the future. And one of my undergraduates said, and raised their hand and they wanted to contribute to the seminar and said, I wouldn't dare accuse a philosopher of contradicting themselves. But I said, why wouldn't you dare like accuse them of contradicting themselves? I said, well, they're, they're really clever. They spend a lot of time engaging with the, these ideas. I'm just a an undergraduate, right? I'm, I'm the student. And I, I imagine that's true of so many uh, students of philosophy. Like, this person must be a genius. This person mm -hmm. must be a, an expert in their field who I can't come close to. And hopefully the commentaries in there show that, no, you could have like a, a simple sentence or without bags of terminology and without your premises and your conclusion, everything tied together. You can criticize these ideas and engage with them and show the limitations of them without having published 10 papers on the topic. So it, it's supposed to show that if you're, quote, like ill-informed or a better word, like inexperienced in, in the field, then 
no, you've you've got a part to play in it, and you don't need to go away and read a, the Oxford Dictionary of Philosophical Terms to do so. Yeah, Andrew, do you find that to be true of your undergraduate experience? No, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. I think that all the time, like whenever, literally every time I read a piece of philosophy, I'm always like. I'm always very hesitant to criticize a, a philosopher, especially older philosophers too, right? Like, like, oh my gosh, these people have been studied for 200 years, like Kant or somebody. I'm like, ah, you know, this is so, so scary. So it's, I feel like that's such a useful feature hmm. for you to have because very good in a very good way to, to get into not even just the subject, but philosophy as a whole. Yeah. I recognize what you say about Kant gets a good example. I remember speaking to Corey Moller, who does the existential comics. And in the interview with him, he said something along the lines of, well, what is it that Kant got something wrong and you, like having studied him for a couple of weeks, have got it right and knocked down his argument? Or that Kant's probably right and you need to go away and think about it some more. It's like, yeah, that, that's kind of the, the nonsense that we don't want to perpetuate. Right? Don't, don't dare criticize like this view or think that you're right and they're wrong. Yeah, a bit of modesty is good in, in order, but in my experience, students go completely the opposite way and they're, they're taught not to critically engage because you're not, you're not qualified enough or something along those lines. So yeah, hopefully it, it, it's a, a step in the right direction in terms of uh, encouraging people to engage with them again. So something I've noticed at school, maybe it's maybe it's just at Rice, where there's a lot of philosophers of consciousness uh, who mm. primarily make up the department. But it seems to, you know, the study of consciousness and philosophy of mind as a whole seems to be such an active field right now, where there's a lot of authors on a wide scale publishing a lot of material. First, I guess, is this uh, is this a representative view that I'm having, or is it just kind of one of bias? And if that's not true, then why is consciousness uh, such a big deal nowadays? So I think we touched on the last question a little bit already. So it's an important philosophical question in terms of whether or not our life is meaningful, the ethics, the understanding of the nature of fundamental reality, and the thing we're most immediately acquainted with, which is conscious experience. Our world is conscious experience, right? Without it, well, you might even think that we're not living in any meaningful sense of the term. So I think it's got that natural pull. In terms of whether you're right in thinking that, yeah, there's been a big boom of consciousness studies as of late and that it's a particularly active and influential field of philosophy at the moment. Yeah, I, I think that like the book sales in terms of like Dennett's Consciousness Explained or Goff's Galileo's Error, Anil Seth's Being You, like it's the data shows that yes, it is a popular form of philosophy. What's given birth to this boom, this this upsurge of, of interest in it, this new wave of interest in it? I suppose it starts with like Thomas Nagel in, in 1974 and Frank Jackson in 82, and then you get Dennett and Strawson and Blackmore and Crick and Penrose and Chalmers all talking about this. And it just snowballs into this uh, field which so many disciplines as well are interested in because it touches on neuroscience and psychology and and then philosophy as well and and it has huge implications for the philosophy of physics mm -hmm. so it's it's one that obviously will have a big impact on on our understanding of the world i think that's why so many people are 
are interested in it. Yeah, you mentioned neuroscience. And in, in my study of, of philosophy of mind, I teach that a bit in class as well. You, you can't escape the science, of course. And so, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a good question with philosophy of consciousness, do I need to be a a neuroscientist to engage with the philosophical issue of consciousness? Like, like what challenges might a, a layman perhaps run into if they're not particularly well-versed in the sciences and physics and attempting to understand arguments of consciousness? This might be controversial, but I don't think you need a knowledge of neuroscience to engage in philosophy of mind or the philosophy of consciousness. I consider myself someone who's engaged with the topic who has no training in neuroscience and has very little knowledge of neuroscience. So perhaps that's my my bias. It would be really bad if like you had to engage with neuroscience and this books came out and I, and I don't even fulfill that really basic criteria. But I think for for the average Jack and Jill on the hill, what they can do to engage with the question isn't even to engage with any academic philosophy. You don't need to buy uh, this book that's come out. Hopefully the publisher's not listening to this. You can simply just ask yourself, what's the nature of my experience? Is it all sensory? Is there something distinct that it's like to have evaluative experiences like fear or, or love or sorrow? Is there a distinct experience which is cognitive, like thinking two plus two equals four? Are they different types of experiences conceptually? Or are they just replays or reconfigurations of sensory experiences? Asking yourself questions like, am I conscious now? Like you ask yourself that for a moment or and ask yourself, what was I conscious of a moment ago? And those questions that you can just ask yourself meditatively on a day-to-day basis, say people like Susan Blackmore, for example, she thinks that when you ask yourself those questions, you will realize that you construct your idea of a self, of a stream of consciousness later on when you ask yourself. It's not that you have this continuity of self all the time, this stream of consciousness. You have to ask yourself and construct that. So she thinks that consciousness or identity or personhood in that sense is an illusion. So I think just reflecting on those questions immediately gives you an insight into the, an important question, which is, what is the nature of, of consciousness? But, okay, let me, let me plug the book once more. If, if you don't engage with neuroscience or any like academic philosophy, as you mentioned a moment ago, all the chapters end with like five questions that you can go away and ask yourself and think about. And none of them presume a subject knowledge outside of what was in that chapter. And none of them are particularly difficult to get into. They're deceptively deep. Like Once you start thinking about them more carefully, you realize there are lots of problems and um, and so on that, that will arise out of them. But there should be good springboards, good starting points to to begin engaging with these questions. So, no, I think I don't think you need a background knowledge in neuroscience. I don't think you need a background knowledge in philosophy either. I think you can get going with, uh, with, with very little in your arsenal. I was just thinking about this, but I think it's the right time for this question. I usually like to ask this at the end uh, when we interview people, but you mentioned that your the book is kind of deceptively deep, but it's a place for beginners to kind of go to, right? So it's it's a good starting place. It sounds like say that someone's like super interested in this field and reads your book, really likes it. I guess the question is, where should they go next? Should they mm-hmm. um, kind of restudy your book, or should you know should they see it as kind of a springboard into the field as a whole? 
That's a really good question, Andrew. I think a combination of both, maybe. I think if you want to go and study these academically and deeply, then at the end of each chapter, what we've got is six recommended readings for each chapter. So two advanced, two intermediate, two beginner. So identify where you are. You should, people uh, generally know where they are on that scale. And then go away and read those two papers. Look at the references on those papers. Find the ideas you're interested in and, and follow your interests. I imagine people are doing it because they enjoy it for the sake of itself. So go, go and find what you enjoy in the field and, and, and run away with it. In terms of like studying the book in depth afterwards, I suppose what's quite interesting about the book is that for the first time, you've got these philosophers in conversation with one another on the written page with broader brushstrokes. So I suppose you could and like identify things within the book and, and research them for the sake of themselves or explore them in more depth. Because all of these philosophers have chosen their words very carefully, but have done so in a way that that's spoken quite casually at times. So I think that provides a, a, a really interesting platform for, for comparison of views when otherwise they can, they don't state them quite as clearly, right? So some people say like, I really don't understand what Susan Blackmore's view is about consciousness. Well, there it is, like clearer than what I think is in most places. We, and she's like, and when it's not clear, she states it again. So what I mean by this is this. So it, it's a it's a good place uh, in and of itself as well. Hopefully, yeah, Jack. You mentioned the amount of philosophers that that are included in this book. Um, were there any? Uh, and I believe it's twelve, if I'm right. Were there mm -hmm. any that were particularly memorable to work with, or maybe some ideas that came from your working with some of these philosophers and their and their texts that were particularly memorable to you? Yeah, the first thing I'd say is that all 12 of the philosophers in the book aren't just extremely good philosophers in their own right and really, really thorough in their work. And it was amazing to see the, the various types of work, work ethic in terms of like their approach to philosophy, just how they go about their professions. That was, that was really insightful and an experience which uh, I don't think I could have I've gained through some other medium. So it's like, I think I developed a lot just, just working alongside them and putting together their contributions. I suppose in terms of like memorable experiences with them, I've, I, as I say, like it personally, they're all extremely kind-hearted people and, and generous with their time and extremely hardworking. But a special place is always in my heart for, for Galen Strawson, who contributes to the book. Like he's, he's incredibly supportive and wonderfully kind-hearted and, uh, he's he's good humoured, and uh, as I've said on a in a few different places and on the Pan Psychast, we've described like the times when we've like visited his house and been to the pub with him, and the emails that he sends are always lovely and supportive and kind. And you know, there's just that personal touch to it, right? There's personally, I'm doing philosophy because it's fun and I, because I enjoy it, and because I like talking to people a lot of the time. Like the reason we do the podcast, or I'm speaking to you guys now, and reason I, I do my job and everything is just because I like having interesting conversations with, with people. And even when they're not that interesting, it's still better than, than not talking to people. And so it's, Strawson's a, a great example of somebody who's, yes, who's, who's just lovely to have a conversation with. And like, to, but he's also extremely thorough. Like these, at the same time, he went over his chapter so many times and in so much detail when he's got so many other commitments and, and even read over our final chapter, Miri Al-Bahari's and I's on, on um, panpsychist idealism. But I think there was at one point 
uh, I think Philip Goff, one of the other contributors, and Strawson will mind me saying this, who were trying to settle on the phrasing of a single sentence within Strawson's chapter. I think it was literally three words which they couldn't settle on. And the email thread between Goff, Strawson, and I ended up being like 25, 26 emails long, just trying to pick this apart. And at one stage, the conversation ended up being about whether or not it was an interesting question <laughs> to ask whether or not or how how many rather angels can fit on the on the point of a, a sure. point of a needle, which is supposed to be the example of like pointless philosophical conversation. But we got there, and Strawson was defending the idea that actually it was quite an interesting question to ask because if if the answer is they occupy no space, then the answer is infinite, and that's quite interesting. <laughs> so, yeah, he's uh, he he's great and um, and really really lovely. But uh, as I said. There's so many people in the book, and I just mentioned Miri Al-Bahari, who I got along with really well, and we ended up putting that final chapter together for. And so many of them were just happy to include stupid jokes in their, <laughs> in their chapters. Like Keith Frankish has this brilliant chapter on illusionism, and I convinced him to include like a, some imagery of a, a seagull stealing his Marmite sandwich and him being furious. <laughs> and then later on in the chapter, he's like lying to his significant other. She's like. Did did you end up losing your marmite sandwich again on the, the harbor? He's like, I remember no. reading that. <laughs> I was going to ask Andrew if you knew what marmite was. <laughs> no, you don't. Oh no! <laughs> so it's not a book for everybody. Apologies. <laughs> oh no, there's a little info box for marmite. Oh like, my gosh! <laughs> yeah, it's a, if you don't know what marmite is, then it will. <laughs> the, the book will let you know. <laughs> you know, uh, when you mentioned Strassen, I was going to say, you know, one of the philosophers I find to be incredibly kind and generous, uh, just their interactions on Twitter is Keith Frankish. And, yeah. uh, you know, he and, and Goff have a, a podcast together. Yeah. You know, those two are kind of on opposing sides of consciousness. And it's just so wonderful to see two colleagues uh, who, who are ideologically separated, but uh, seem to enjoy each other so much. Yeah, definitely. They they do enjoy each other's, each other's company a lot, and they're, they're both wonderful people, and they both reference each other and speak highly of one another in the book too. And Andrew, if you don't know what Marmite is, I'll give you the info box. There's a little extract from, from the book if you're not already sold. Marmite is a sticky brown food paste. The taste of Marmite is widely considered to be the most delightful conscious experience a person can have. <laughs> I don't actually think that's that informative, really, is it? <laughs> a sticky brown food. Maybe you call it like Vegemite or something over there? Vegemite, yes, I've heard of that. Vegemite, yeah. King, is that my... the same thing? It's like yeast? Yeah, it's, it's like there's something that is to be like Marmite. <laughs> yeah and that thing is being delicious i'll have to go to i'll have to go i'll have to go test that test that hypothesis and see if they have that at the grocery store <laughs> see anyone can engage with consciousness studies andrew you just need to find yourself some marmite and describe your experience <laughs> that's funny that's the sound of money fresh printed money I hope everyone's enjoying the conversation with Jack on consciousness. But as we always do in our episodes, we need to acknowledge our sponsors. So, you know, guys, I've never been to Greece. But I have played Assassin's Creed Odyssey. And if that game is anywhere near to reality, like you can't throw a rock without hitting a cave. Which brings us to this week's sponsor, Plato's Spelunking Guide Service. That's right. Plato's Splunking Guide Service specializes in all your caving needs. 
wanting to see the wonders of limestone formations millions of years in the making, (laughs) interested in staring at shadows on a wall, looking for future careers and puppeteering in the dim light of a fire. Plato's Spelunking Guide Service can help you with all your needs. We have here some customer testimonies. Oh, never mind. It looks like this is just a dialogue of Socrates asking a bunch of rhetorical questions about caves. Well, at any rate, thank you again to Plato's Plelunking Guide Services, helping allegorical cave adventurers navigate the darkness of ignorance since 375 BCE. Oh man, have you have you ever been in any caves, Andrew? I have not, but I'm I'm curious if you've ever actually played uh, Assassin's Creed oh. Odyssey. <laughs> I, uh, so last year, a student told me if I played Assassin's Creed, I get to talk to Socrates in that game. No way, really. It's the only reason I played it, but I never finished it. I have to I have to shamefully admit. Um <laughs> Jack, Assassin's Creed fan, are you? I think I played the first one back in the day, and I do know that Socrates is is in one, but uh, they just kind of released the same game year on year now, don't they? It's just like a, like a sports <laughs> game, but That's right. Yeah, like there wasn't the first one like set in uh Flor- Renaissance Florence. Yeah, like it's dead serious and like like normal, and then at the very end they're just like magic, and you're yeah. like, <laughs> cool. You know, dead serious is uh is right <laughs> on because so you know assassination and such. Well, we'd love to ask you, our fantastic listeners, to sponsor us by quickly rating our podcast and perhaps even leaving a review. It makes all the algorithmic AI happy and causing open-door philosophy to pop up more frequently in search results and recommendations to other listeners. Next episode is going to be a episode based on listener questions. So before that, make sure to send any questions that you have in by the end of next week. So super excited at answering all of y'all's questions. That's right. Send in those nagging philosophical questions like, you know, why does evil exist? To us at opendoorphilosophy at gmail.com. Or hit us up on Twitter or Open Door Philosophy on Instagram. And that's it. Now back to the show. I think this is a good question. It's something I have a small inclination about what what you're going to say, but I think it's a good question. So um, which theory of consciousness do you find most compelling? Can I flip the question on you, Andrew, and ask you what you think I'm going to say? (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm I'm just guessing based on your podcast name, it's going to be something relating to panpsychism, but I could be wrong about that. Yeah, no, uh, that's often people's like thoughts after reading the name of the the podcast. And often when we invite guests on, they say, "I'm not coming on if this is a podcast about panpsychism." <laughs> we have to reassure them it's just the the name of the podcast. Yeah, I suppose I'm not married to any philosophical theory in terms of philosophy of mind. I'm philosophically homeless when it comes to the question of how we can explain consciousness apart from the boring type of physicalism that just says explain like all the physical processes in the brain and and then you've got a theory of consciousness or track all the neurocorrelates of consciousness like this brain state is equivalent to this conscious experience or maps onto that conscious experience i'm not a big fan of of that view but no i'm pretty open-minded when it comes to all of it, really. I don't consider myself to be like a cheap car salesman of a philosopher or teacher, better put, which says, like, you should think this view here. So even when in the book, in the final chapter, I write that one with Miri Al-Bahari and 
it seems perhaps for the reader that I'm an idealist panpsychist. That's simply to end on a big idea. It's simply to be provocative and continue discussion after the fact. And I think that's, uh, I'm, I'm quite happy with that approach. So in the same way as like that, not to compare myself to him because the, you know, the world didn't exactly end well for, for Socrates, but like in those early Socratic dialogues, he's not saying this is the view you should have, right? He's just simply asking questions, getting to know the theories better and, and, and showing the, the holes in them. And I'm kind of interested in that project when it comes to philosophy of mind. And then obviously in those Socratic dialogues, there's lots of questions people can go away and start studying in, in more detail. So that, that's sort of the aim there. If you were to push me, Andrew, if you were to say, give me a philosophical theory in the world of philosophy of mind that you're most, uh, you're most strongly obliged to, to follow, what you think is the most elegant theory, the best shot at explaining consciousness. If you were really annoying about it, then I would say, yeah, like a kind of form of panpsychism is what I would go in for. I think panpsychism does answer the fundamental question, which is, how does consciousness fit into our understanding of the world? It raises loads of interesting questions. It identifies the presumptions by the physicalists. Like they say, oh, it, the world's just made of physical stuff. So, and I'm just a physical thing. So, like, how does this thing we think is consciousness fit into that? And I think Strawson and, and Goff and Al-Bahari say, well, why should we bind to that assumption? the most immediate thing we know is that we're conscious back to Descartes I can doubt everything the unshakable truth is that I'm a conscious thing and now I should build up from there and I think that building from certainty and going where the arguments take them might take you to a pretty kooky place but it offers you a, a compelling theory of consciousness I'm not saying it solves all the problems and, and like I said I'm not actually married to panpsychism but I think it's one of the best shots we've got answering the question I say it's kooky though like two billion hindus and buddhists in the world they wouldn't think it was kooky at all i think that they would that the vast majority of them would embrace a form of like idealist panpsychism or panpsychism and even when you speak to people when, I, when i'm speaking to people about panpsychism in my day-to-day life or students they're, they're pretty on board with it and even in the full paper survey when philosophers are surveyed like it's i don't it's not really a minority view it's a compelling view and people recognize it to be compelling and it's it's even gaining traction now, even amongst the hyper-empiricist uh, philosophers in, in the West. Well, you mentioned uh, Buddhists and Hindus, and this brings up another question I, I wanted to ask. You know, sometimes in philosophy, especially here in Europe and America, it can seem, and this is a broad category, but very Western. And then we think of Hinduism and Buddhism, we're like, oh, well, that's Eastern. And, uh, you know, in class, I teach the Tao Te Ching, which is kind of a, a mind flip mm. for a lot of students with, uh, with particular Western predilections about how we conceive of, well, almost everything. And so I was wondering, you know, from your interaction with this book and many other philosophers of consciousness, is there kind of an East-West divide on consciousness? I don't mean like a divide, like an, a raging disagreement or something, but uh, like in other words, does the yeah. scientific nature of consciousness transcend cultural influences because we have this uh, scientific aspect to part of it uh, that might impact its study? As it does, you know, like there seems to be a big difference between in Eastern and Western seeing things like approaches to ethics, approaches to beauty and aesthetics. Do, do we find the same thing with consciousness? Mm. Yeah, it's a really great question. And, and one I'm not going to be able to 
to answer too convincingly, a few naive reflections on it, is that on the face of it, yeah, it seems like like Taoism or Hinduism or Buddhism lends itself very nicely to a a type of panpsychism or idealism, which would just say like consciousness is everywhere. Let's just say that. Where as for any Western listeners listening now, they might find that view a little bit unusual or strange, but it's certainly there. Like there are theists that think that God is everywhere and that God is conscious. There are people that like Schopenhauer or followers of Berkeley. Like that thought exists within the West as well. So it's really hard to carve out like a distinction in a way of thinking. But certainly the the pull of Hinduism and Buddhism and Taoism and all the traditions which are in the East lend themselves well to it and probably have cultivated a stronger belief in that kind of thinking. Whereas that doesn't seem as prominent in, as in the West. I think that's probably is the most we can say without you know, spending a good four or five years doing a, a thesis on the topic. Definitely some people are tied to the materialist view of consciousness. And our previous episode, we kind of went over that theory. And I don't think we got to this question, but I'm interested in your thoughts. I, I know, I think you said at the beginning of the episode that you teach kind of some seminars on ethics too. So I'm interested in your response to the question, can a materialist view of consciousness make room for moral responsibility? That's a really good question. I want to break the question almost immediately here and and say that I follow Galen Strawson in thinking that none of these views can make sense of ultimate responsibility. And for listeners who don't know how the argument goes, it runs something like this. You do what you do because of how you are, and to be ultimately responsible for what you do, you have to be responsible for what you are. You can't be responsible for how you are, so you can't be responsible for what you do. It's almost like you'd have to step outside of yourself and create yourself if you do what you do because of the way you are to have that that influence, that responsibility. But even then, you've got this sort of infinite regress in which, well, the person that creates you would have to would be after someone that creates them. And so it will be turtles all the way down. It doesn't seem like uh, at what point you can be responsible for what you are and therefore what you do. I think there's a, a helpful quote from popular atheist Richard Dawkins, who says, quote, a truly scientific mechanistic view of the nervous system makes nonsense of the very idea of responsibility, whether diminished or not. I think it's true of like, you can't be re- responsible for the soul you have, you can't be responsible for like your physical composition, or even if we consider panpsychism a form of of naturalism or physicalism, you can't be responsible for how those things are arranged. So, at what level am I responsible for how I am? I don't think any of these theories of of consciousness can can settle that question or can give us ultimate responsibility. That might be a little bit uh, sadder than. Uh, a little bit of a depressing ending that no one's responsible for absolutely anything. That's liberating as well, right? We give ourselves such a hard time. Ultimately, none of us are responsible for any of our shortcomings. Maybe that's uh, <laughs> at the same time, anything good you do is, is also like you would deserve no praise for that, maybe. Not maybe. You definitely don't deserve any praise. I think that's a great response. And, and I'm going to turn around this uh, so-called depressive ending. So someone in our show notes wrote a question. It says, you're so handsome and cool. What's your secret? And I'm not sure which of the two of you wrote that because it could be asked of either of you. 
Andrew, that's so kind of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, oh, I thought it was a question for me. <laughs> sorry, sorry, what's the question, Derek? How, how are you so handsome and cool? Yeah, since you're so handsome and cool, what's your secret? <laughs> Andrew, do you really want to know? <laughs> of course. <laughs> Eight hours of sleep. Uh, <laughs> Every night. Yes. I thought you were going to say it was going to be all the, all the philosophy reading. But uh... no, no, no reading necessary. If you get eight hours of sleep, you cultivate coolness. But and tea cakes. Have you have you had a tea cake, Andrew? Have you, are they in are they in the states? I'm, I, I've never heard of that. No. So I I can't have them anymore as a born again vegan. But they're like a chocolate <laughs> dome with like a biscuity base and then a marshmallow top, and oh, they're phenomenal. <laughs> and. Sounds so good. I, I think to... I ate so many of them before <laughs> I rejected the world of, of dairy that, um, yeah, they have a lasting effect on me. I'm, I'm always always happy. So there you go. <laughs> Hopefully, Andrew, if I can just convince you to eat tea cakes and get eight hours sleep a night, then then my work here is done. So I have to I have to find some kind of British uh, British store around here, Mister Parsons. Uh, can... Andrew, like close to your university, is something called the Red Lion Pub. Um, we, I should take you there sometime. Yeah. Are you 21 to, yet? Can to... you drink? Are you 21 yet? <laughs> I think you're 20. I've, I've, I have three months. Three months. <laughs> well, the Red Lion Pub it will be. You'll love England, Andrew. You can, you can drink at 18 here. So <laughs> what are you wasting your time in the States for? In, in moderation. I'm so curious on all these British, these British foods that you mentioned. So that's that's the main priority. All this, what is it? Marmite and tea cakes. They sound marmite I, tea cakes, bangs and mash. For any yeah. English people, <laughs> British people listening, they're going to be like, <laughs> you're you're not representing the country like in a positive light here. <laughs> well, this has been a wonderful conversation, Jack. And I always like to end a conversation with. Uh, it may not necessarily have to do with the topic, but I think this certainly could. Uh, sort of a meaningful question to wrap up a conversation. So, Jack, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? Wow. I assume you're not looking for like a biological a answer. biological, or, yeah. Like to clarify the concept. I assume you're wanting something a bit more deep yeah. and profound than just like here are the necessary and sufficient conditions for being a human right. <laughs> here we are these strange creatures on this planet so uh yeah what does it mean to be human to be human is to wake up every day and and try and be a little bit better than than you are yesterday in terms of not just being a good person and improving your relationships with others and developing your career and developing it you know, those things we typically consider to be factors in the good life you might want to we have these projects don't we whether it's writing a book or, or running a marathon or trying to convince people to eat tea cakes well, that's a beautiful sentiment i really appreciate it well jack thank you so much for being on the show today thank you for uh for coming on and talking to us about your new book philosophers on consciousness talking about the mind it is out now in the United States and surely in the UK as well. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. It's, yeah. been, uh, it's been great fun speaking to you both. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Derek. Well, that was a lot of fun, but all things, <laughs> well, I guess, <laughs> 
all things must come to an end as well as good things. So that's going to be it for today's episode, unfortunately. Yeah, of course, we'd like to thank everyone so much for listening and passing along Open Door Philosophy to your friends. You can find more about our show episode resources at our website, opendoorphilosophy.com. And you can find more about Jack's podcast at thepansycast.com, where you'll find a lot of good information, too. And engage with us online at my Twitter, which is D underscore Parsonage, and our Open Door Philosophy Instagram. We'd once again like to thank Kevin McLeod for the use of his free music. It's really groovy, so go check him out online. And thank you once again to Jack Symes for appearing on the show. We'll see you next time. And remember, when your life is in need of some philosophy, doors always open. That's a, that's a fancy word for caving, I guess. <laughs> it, Am I saying it right? It's blah Yeah. Well, it's a terrible word. It sounds awful. Spelunking. <laughs> it does. Yeah, it, is, it is not a fun word, actually. That's why I chose it. I thought it was funny. <laughs> Plato's lunking. Yes, guy. It's, uh, it's, it's exploring, according to the uh, dic- Google dictionary, the exploration of caves, especially as a hobby. Could you just play yourself the pronunciation? Uh, just because I don't want to say splunking, because it sounds quite. Well, I- I've always heard it as spew-lunking, like you're spewing something out of your mouth. That's worse, but I'll say that. (laughs) Is is that that how it's pronounced? I've never never heard this word, actually. I've only read it, I think. Are you guys saying it as well? Spew-lunking. Spew-lunking? Spew-lunking? Welcome to our uh, our off our our special subscriber episode where we attempt to pronounce yeah. words. <laughs> Everyone just saying splunking for about twenty minutes. Uh, well, no one's going to know any different because they won't know the word either. So, <laughs> no, they won't. You're right. If we say it with enough confidence, that's right. People that's right. That's half it. a teaching right there. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> That's an agreeable laugh for me <laughs> and the shocking revelation friend. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, okay. Right, cool. All right, here we go. Here we go. <laughs>